0: morning everyone it's very good to be back here with you all together in person last weekend I uh, preached to an empty sanctuary like a video camera in an empty sanctuary and I am very grateful for online church but there is something different and wonderful about being in person and seeing people's faces um, and I think because I think of sermons as conversations and when I can see people's reactions we can kind of have that back and forth um, I really appreciate it. And I think maybe this sermon today, more than others that I preached here, I really think of as a conversation because I don't think as a guest speaker, it's my place to come here and tell all of you why you are here this morning or why you should be here or how you should feel about what the worship experience is. I think that's something that's um, personal and also kind of communal. And I'm really interested after the service and hearing all of you Tell me what worship means to you and why you come here on Sunday mornings and what it means to be uh, in this space. So I think really what I'm doing today is a little bit more of kind of providing some maybe scaffolding for that conversation of what it means to show up and participate in the service together and worship together. Um, and I am very grateful to the choir for singing "Enter rejoice and come in to set me up this morning and. Um, definitely one of the more upbeat songs in our hymnal and depending on who you ask uh, maybe one of the slightly more annoying hymns in the hymnal. (laughs) I know some people just grates on their nerves and it gets stuck in your head and it's like an earworm Um, but I you know I wanted to use it and I titled my sermon that today because when I was a children's religious education teacher my congregation back in DC this was the song that we would use to welcome the kids into children's chapel every Sunday morning so it was kind of our call to worship for the kids um, before splitting up by age group into different classrooms for the lessons and activities, all of the kids would gather together in the resource room in the basement of the church and participate in basically a mini version of the service that all of the adults were having um, upstairs. And the church I attended was a big church. It had, was an old church. It had really high ceilings and balconies and like a big organ in the back, um, a very imposing pulpit. You kind of had to walk upstairs to get to the pulpit. <laughs> Um, We had a very large choir, a lot of very talented musicians, um, several clergy who were robed and would kind of sit behind the pulpit, um, a few hundred people at every service. So it was all very professional and kind of well-oiled and awe-inspiring. And then meanwhile, with the kids, we were down in this low-ceilinged resource room, which was cluttered with art supplies and um, dress-up. And we would be lucky to get through that first verse of enter rejoice and come in without some kind of interruption right without a kid who needed to go to the bathroom or thought maybe this was a good time to climb up on a chair and test their power of flight (laughs) Um, i remember one particular sunday we would do have like a very kind of brief moment of prayer or meditation with the kids and our religious education director would chime a bell and she would get up and instruct all of the kids to sit quietly and think about anyone in their life or the world, maybe, that they thought who might need our love and care. And just kind of sit quietly and think about that person or those people. And then when she would chime the bell again, if they wanted to, they were invited to say that person's name out loud. And that was kind of how we did prayer with the kids. And I remember this one Sunday, this little boy, I watched him close his eyes and kind of scrunch his face up in concentration as he was trying to think of the people that he wanted to pray for. And when she chimed the bell, he yelled out, I don't know. <laughs> and that's how like most of these kid services were. They were funny, they were chaotic, they were full of squirming and giggling and fighting over who got to like the chalice that day. They were always imperfect. They were rarely peaceful. But yet while I was there, I knew without a shadow of a doubt that this too was worship. It was just as valid and just as deserving of that name as the more polished production that was happening in the sanctuary on the floor above us. I think I've been thinking about that story a lot lately, um, particularly as the pandemic has stripped down and shifted our ways of worshiping. Every time there is a Zoom glitch in virtual worship or a last minute adjustment in the order of service because of a COVID exposure, um, whenever I feel a little sad that the hymns don't sound quite as good without the full choir and congregation joining in song, um, you know, those moments where it feels like worship is somehow ruined or made less sacred or less holy when this kind of man behind the curtain is revealed. Those times where I'm like, please pardon this interruption in the prayer while we attend to some technical difficulties. And <laughs> those moments I find myself thinking back to those chaotic, imperfect children's chapel services. Like, What was it that made them feel worshipful despite everything that was going on? I think put more fundamentally... The question is, what is a worship service anyway? What are we all doing here together on the Sunday morning and every Sunday morning, and why? And it strikes me, I think, that the middle of winter during a global pandemic is actually a really good time to ask these kinds of questions. Writer Madeline Lingle once wrote that winter reveals structure, meaning that when the trees are stripped bare of their leaves and blossoms, we can see what's underneath. The branches and trunk that support all of the colorful beauty. Only as the structure is firmly there, she continues, are we able to dress it with the lovely trappings of spring. Collectively and for churches in particular, the pandemic has been kind of a metaphorical winter, with the tree of congregational life stripped of its many blossoms and leaves, coffee hour and shared meals, the rich sound of choir and congregation joining together in song, the laughter of children during a particularly funny story for all ages. I think the blessing in it, if there is one, is that it gives us a chance to see anew the branches that support congregational life. So I've really found myself repeatedly turning to these just very basic fundamental questions about the definition and purpose of religious community. And at the congregations that I'm privileged enough to get to preach at, I've been trying to encourage folks to ask those questions along with me. To use this literal and metaphorical season of winter as a time for deep reflection and renewed commitment to the branches supporting our Unitarian Universalist faith. So what does it mean to worship together as Unitarian Universalist? To show up to service on Sunday mornings? I think especially as people who come with different names and understandings of the divine. You know, a traditional understanding of worship as giving glory to God just doesn't work for most or all of us. So what are those most basic threads that connect the elaborate sanctuary services of my home congregation to the cheerful chaos of the children's chapel services and the warm and deeply thoughtful way you all gather here on Sunday mornings? Think to start, I would invite us to turn back to the cheerful and annoyingly catchy lyrics of hymn number 361 for answers. As you heard, the first verse of the hymn reads, Enter, rejoice, and come in. Today will be a joyful day. Enter, rejoice, and come in. And this slide has always struck me as a little odd. I don't know if anyone else feels this way and like kind of out of order. It's like we enter, and then we rejoice, and then we come in. But come into where? Like I thought we've already entered. (laughs) And I won't speak for the song's composer, Luis Russini. But the more time that I spend with these seemingly simple but kind of confusing lyrics, the more they begin to make some sense to me as the first steps of worshiping together. Enter, rejoice, and come in. We show up, we affirm that it is good to be together, and then we come into a sacred covenantal space. That first part, that showing up part alone, I don't think is to be overlooked, and these days it is pretty unusual. Although anthropologists and historians and theologians will tell you that the impulse to worship is innately human, according to a Pew survey, only 36% of Americans do so regularly within a religious community. And we live in a society that is increasingly siloed and obsessed with productivity and efficiency. We read articles about how successful entrepreneurs wake up at 4 a.m. to maximize the time in their day. Or we follow like Instagram influencers who hashtag things, you know, grind culture, <laughs> hustle, girl boss. <laughs> and I think in this environment, showing up to communal worship feels profoundly countercultural. I mean, there is nothing of monetary value that is produced in what we do here. There are no measurable objectives or outcomes achieved and we don't get to choose the sermon topic or the hymns that we individually feel like we need to hear that day. I think it runs really counterculture to our individually curated productivity obsessed larger culture. So that's the entering part, the showing up part. I think those of you who've been to a service before know that there's something that changes in the room, a kind of quality in the air between that entering the building, the kind of shuffling in and taking our coats off and chit chat and the lighting of the chalice. There's something that happens between that entering and then what that, I think, is the coming in part of the song. We may have entered the building, but we have not yet come into sacred space. Unitarian Universalist worship services differ widely. I don't know how many of you have visited different congregations, but worship is very different depending on where you go. But some folks who've done surveys of UU congregations have found that the chalice lighting and the reading of a shared covenant Are the worship elements that the majority of us share in common? And I think it's through these ritual acts that we consecrate the space and time as holy, and that we affirm we are entering into this holy time together as a community that is accountable to one another and accompanying each other on this journey. I think this is the thing that separates our communal worship from our more individual spiritual practices or isolated spiritual experiences, the private morning meditations or the hikes up to a mountain to feel in touch with the spirit. um, Those are important and they are transformative. I'm not discounting them, but I think that there's something different. It's through communal worship that we remember, in the words of Ram Dass, that we are all just walking each other home. And this is why I often start sermons or open worship by saying it is good to be here together today because it is so good that we do not have to be on this journey alone. Enter, rejoice, and come in. We are here in this sacred space together. And the second verse, as you heard earlier, goes, open your ears to the song. And this one feels really important to me because I think one often overlooked understanding of what worship is, is as a space and opportunity and time to listen. We don't have a lot of spaces in our world devoted to really deep listening, and I think worship is one of them. It's A space to listen to voices that aren't our own, whether that's through diverse readings and sermons and hymns or testimonies from fellow congregants. It's also a space to listen to the voices that we hear best in silence, the still small voice inside us, the divine voice that breaks through the quiet. And it's a space to hear meaning that can't be expressed in words, through music and ritual, whether it's singing hymns or lighting candles or placing stones. But verse three reminds us that listening is only part of the equation. If our ears are open, but our hearts are closed, those voices are just gonna go in one ear and out the other without actually moving our souls. That is why verse three implores, open your hearts, everyone. I think worship is a time to let ourselves be tender and open and malleable. This idea of opening your heart is curious to me because I feel like, and I don't know if you'll agree with me here, um, but I feel like it has both kind of an active and a passive connotation to it, right? Open is an active verb. It's a thing that you have to do. Um, But at the same time, there's a sense that when you open your heart, you're letting others inside. You're kind of letting this experience work on you and change you. Letting things move you that you can't control or contain. It's an active choice, but a really vulnerable one. And I think of worship in much the same way. You know, it requires us to show up. Our presence is necessary and foundational. It's not a performance that we consume, but a thing we are actually taking part in and co-creating together just by witnessing it, whether we have a leading speaking role in front of the congregation or not. And this is what is implied in the etymology of the word liturgy, which comes from the Greek phrase, meaning the work of the people. Or the Christian idea of worship as where two or three are gathered. So I think in that way, through this kind of combination of the active and the passive, worship serves as a template for opening our hearts. With our active presence here, we become ready to receive new gifts and insights. And when our hearts are open, we have more room, more room for other people, for different ways of experiencing and naming the divine, for new questions. There's more room to hold uncertainty and contradictions and pain and grief and joy. When our hearts are open by worship, we are able to more easily carry everything this life, this being human requires us to carry and we can do so with more ease and more compassion. And finally, the song ends with the words, don't be afraid of some change. The hope is that by showing up, by making space for listening and opening our hearts to what we hear, we are changed and also feel renewed commitment to create change in the world. I think this last component of worship is best demonstrated through a story that you theologians and ministers Rebecca Parker and John Burens share in their book A House for Hope. They write The people of Les Chambon, a small village in France, harbored hundreds of Jewish children during World War II. Years later, when they were visited by one of the children, now a grown man, who had been sheltered there, he found himself asking why that village had sheltered Jewish children when so many others had not. He found his answer in observing their simple worship practices. See, this was a Huguenot Protestant village, a religious minority accustomed to struggling to survive. They regularly gathered to sing hymns, to recall the faith of ancestors who had held fast to the spirit of love even in times of trial, to offer thanksgiving, and to pray for one another. When he asked them to explain, they said that they could not imagine responding in any other way. It was simply the shape their souls had. Their ways of worship had formed them for courage and for resistance. So for me, these are the most basic branches of worship. We show up. We affirm the goodness of our covenant together. We consecrate the space and time we are sharing as holy. We listen. We open ourselves up to what we are hearing, and we let ourselves be changed by it. The rest of it, the order and number of songs and debates about when to light like the chalice or how long to pause for silent prayer or whether clergy should wear robes or stoles, all of that is just the pretty blossoms that will drop and wither and rebloom throughout the seasons. So, why share this message with you this morning? So, what? I think first I do it as a reminder that what we do here matters. So I hope that you will remember this one Sunday when it's rainy and you have too much work to do and it would be so much easier to just stay home. Showing up here matters, even if we can't measure how and why with some kind of strategic goal or production quota. But the other reason, I think the maybe more timely reason, is because this is a deep and profound way to worship but it is also one that offers a lot of flexibility and expansiveness and room for imagination. And it allows us to meet people where they're at. See, the way my religious education kids showed up and did these four things looks very different from the way we have this morning or the way my church in DC is doing so right now on the East Coast. And that's good. Unitarian Universalists have a long history of examining and revising worship so that it meets the needs of changing times and changing people while still holding fast to our principles and values. I mean, after all, our faith tradition descends from Puritans who, for all of their faults, were certainly liturgical reformers. UU ancestor Ralph Waldo Emerson delivered his famous divinity School address to a group of graduating Unitarian ministers in 1838. But save some formal and dated language, it feels like it could have been written last week by people bemoaning the decline in church attendance in the US. <laughs> Nearly 200 years ago, he declared, What hold the public worship had on men is gone or going. <laughs> 200 years ago. And he called for a renewal in worship life that valued each individual's experience of the divine over shared creeds. I think more recently, as you use, we've attempted to incorporate worship elements from the many sources and traditions that make up our rich tapestry of faith, and then we have re-examined those attempts in light of concern over cultural appropriation. And in March of 2020, we showed great ingenuity and care for our community when we pivoted to figure out how to worship together safely in the midst of a global pandemic. We are living through very complicated times as a church-going people. Church attendance in the U.S. continues to decline and congregations struggle to figure out how to bring in new members and young people. We all have whiplash from the constant pivoting as we navigate wave after wave of this pandemic. And the worsening climate crisis has many of us wondering if we will even recognize the planet we inhabit 10 years from now. It would be entirely understandable if you were sitting here thinking, what should worship look like during the apocalypse? But I think viewing worship through the four vo- verses of enter, rejoice, and come in is a reminder both that we need worship to survive these challenges and that our Universalist, Un- Unitarian Universalist understanding of worship is uniquely suited for adapting to these challenges. We will find new ways to gather together and to listen to ensure our hearts stay open to both the world's pain and the world's wonder, and to allow ourselves to change and be changed in the process. May it be so. May we make it so through our act of worshiping together. Amen.